This past Thursday, uh, Jewish people around the world commemorated a night known as uh, Kristallnacht, uh, or also known as the Night of Broken Glass. Uh, 85 years ago, this past Thursday, November 9th, 1938, uh, Nazis terrorized Jewish people throughout Germany and Austria Uh, killing at least 91 people, vandalizing thousands of Jewish businesses. They threw, they they shattered windows of Jewish homes and uh, Jewish businesses. That's why it's called the Night of Broken Glass. Uh, They burned more than 1,400 synagogues. Uh, As many as 30,000 Jewish men were arrested, uh, many of whom were taken to concentration camps where several of them took their own lives or died uh, because of the mistreatment that they endured in those camps. Uh, That night was a turning point in the escalation of persecution against Jews that eventually led to the killings, as you know, of six million Jews by the Nazis and their supporters during the Holocaust. And you, you may not know this, but some of Uh, the support for what the Nazis were doing uh, to the Jewish people came from those who professed to be Christians and who justified the violence by saying that the Jews were reaping only what they deserved as the crucifiers of Christ. Uh, If you want to read more about that, you could find a book called Our Hands Are Stained With Blood, Uh, The author uh, is Michael Brown. I don't recommend all of his stuff about everything, but he has written faithfully on that subject. Uh, These observances around the world this past week, of course, were taking place at a time where in Germany and really in many places in the world uh, are seeing a sharp rise in anti-Semitic sentiment and threats in the wake of the ongoing conflict between Israel and Hamas after the attack in Israel this past October 7th. Uh, These stories uh, touch me personally. I can remember days off. This is something that you, my family probably doesn't know about me. Uh, I can remember days off from school when I was told not to come to school because there were bomb threats being made against my school. And so uh, it's, not a, it's not an insignificant, just sort of cultural issue for me. And all of this weighed upon me as I turned in my Bible to the place I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles. That's Acts chapter 13. Uh, you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles as we continue in our study of the book of Acts. Uh, We're in Acts chapter 13. If you're going to follow along in one of the Bibles we have provided, it's on page 921. Uh, In the book of Acts, uh, Luke is chronicling the ongoing fulfillment of Jesus' promise to build his church and to send out his people as his witnesses from Jerusalem all the way to the ends of the earth. We began looking at chapter 13 last week and we saw that in the beginning of chapter 13 we observed and we noted that this was the first deliberate planned uh, effort by a local church to send a missionary team as we might call it today to send a missionary team to carry the good news of the gospel to others who were far away geographically. And as we continue 
to look at the account of this first missions trip in the life of the local church, uh, what we're going to see today illustrates for us, I think vividly, that anti-Semitism really is an outrageous evil. Uh, to, be, to discriminate against any ethnic group of people because of their ethnicity or skin color is an outrageous thing. It's an evil thing. Uh, but anti-Semitism is an evil thing, and it is all the more evil amongst those who would claim the name of Christ because our very identity as children of God is tied to the existence of the Jewish people and of God's promises that he made to the Jewish people and all of us from every nation who have come to share in those blessings first promised to the Jewish people should not hate the Jewish people, should not oppose the Jewish people, but should long for and seek the restoration of the Jewish people to their Messiah, which is what we see Paul doing in this very passage. Uh, Our text this morning is a a bit of a long one, so you may be helped this morning if I just give you the main idea up front before I read the passage. Uh, This is what I believe we're going to see as we look into this portion of God's word. I think the main point could be summed up this way. In Jesus, God has fulfilled all his promises to the people of Israel So don't miss out on such a great salvation. Okay, I'll say that again, then I'm gonna pray, and then I'll read this passage to you. In Jesus, God has fulfilled all his promises to the people of Israel, so don't miss out on such a great salvation. Keep that main idea in mind as I read this passage passage of scripture, but first let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its instruction. We thank you for its encouragement. We thank you for how we've been uh, strengthened and encouraged in your faithfulness, even through the different parts of our worship service to this point. We pray that as we look into your word, we'd be encouraged yet again with reminders of your faithfulness, your keeping of your promises to your people, that you would strengthen our souls where we may be feeling weak, where we may be feeling discouraged or tired, unsure of what you're doing, why you're allowing certain things that you're allowing. May we be strengthened today and established as we remember your faithfulness as it was declared by the Apostle Paul in this synagogue in the city of Antioch. And we ask for this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 13. Uh, I'm going to read verses 13 through 43. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers 
and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after he gave them judges, after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfill them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your holy ones see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. And as they, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Uh, this is God's word. This is God's word, brothers and sisters. May he grant us a blessing in the hearing of it and in the doing of it. We're told at the beginning of this passage 
that Paul and his companions travel from Paphos to Perga. Uh, I'm, I'm told that's about 110 miles of a trip. And we're not really told anything about what happens there in Perga as far as ministry or preaching or the receptivity of the people there to the word of God. Uh, all that we're really told, what seems most notable about that time in Perga is that John, uh, also called John Mark, he left the group and he returned to Jerusalem. We don't know why he left. Uh, I'm particularly curious. I wish I did know why he left them because this issue of him leaving them is going to become an issue. It's going to be a pretty contentious issue between Paul and Barnabas that we'll see when we get to the end of chapter 15. Uh, but we don't know why it is that John left. We just know John left. He went back to Jerusalem. And now the team without John travels from Pergia, uh, Perga to Antioch of Pisidia. This is a different Antioch. If you remember last week, actually this missions trip began in Antioch. And now they're arriving in another Antioch. There were lots of Antiochs in the Greco-Roman world, just like there's a lot of Springfields. Uh, if you look at our culture, don't Google it now, okay? There's a lot of Springfields around this country. There were a lot of Antioch, so they started in Antioch. Now they're traveling and they're going on, and, and this is about another 100 miles or so from Perga. They arrive in Antioch in Pisidia, and their ministry begins in a Jewish synagogue in that city. Uh, this was a very common practice. I alluded to this last Sunday, actually, that this was a common practice of Paul. When he would arrive in a place, he would first go to a Jewish synagogue and he would tell them about Jesus. Uh, I think there were probably theological and practical reasons for that. Theologically, uh, we're told that salvation is from the Jews. And, and Paul said in Romans chapter 1 that the gospel is for the Jew first and then for the Greek. So Paul made it a practice to go and bring the good news of Jesus first to the Jews. But I think also there was practical reason for this because he himself was a Jew and he had a reputation for being a very faithful Jew. He was a Pharisee. He mentions his credentials as a Jew of the Jews uh, in Philippians chapter three. And so he probably had an, an open ear. He had an open door, an invitation to come to these Jewish synagogues. They would have thought a notable Pharisee is here. And so he would have had an occasion to be able to uh, bring the good news of Jesus to them. So he's in the Jewish synagogue and it seems here in this synagogue in Antioch as if the word had spread that a prominent Pharisee was among them and so they they ask him in the middle of their their liturgy they've got readings from the prophets and the law and they're doing prayers and they ask this visitor if they've if he's got a word from them uh, I know that if you in other parts of the world uh, you could just, I was warned about this when I went to India many years ago. It's like, you better be prepared to have a word because they might just ask you on the spot to get up and share a little sermon. And, and so they ask if there's a word of encouragement and Paul stands up, he, he motions to the crowd, which likely suggests that this was a large uh, gathering. And uh, what we have here in this message, I think is just a summary of what Paul said. Like, this is a very short message. I mean, it, just took, it was a longer reading than we're accustomed to, but if that was the whole sermon, that was only like three minutes long. And some of you might like three-minute sermons. I don't think that would be, not necessarily nourish the people of God. But I think this is a summary of what Paul shared on that day. Uh, if you look at the book of Hebrews, 
the book of Hebrews, at the very end of the book of Hebrews, the writer says, you have borne with this word of exhortation. I've written you briefly. He says, I've shared with you briefly, a brief word of exhortation. And it takes, if I was to stand up here and recite for you the book of Hebrews from start to finish, it takes about 45 minutes to do. So I think this was a a summary of what Paul was saying on that day. And I'm now just going to give you a summary of the summary, but it's really encouraging. I mean, he, he was asked to share a word of encouragement, and this is really encouraging. The summary of the summary is that in Jesus, God has fulfilled all his promises to the people of Israel, so don't miss out on such a great salvation. This word, this word of encouragement that Paul shares, it centers on Jesus, but it doesn't begin with Jesus. Paul begins by briefly sketching out Israel's history and how it all led up to the arrival of Jesus as the fulfillment of all that God had promised to his people. And this, this Paul begins with God, and this is, I heard one time a pastor say, this is the most God-centered sermon in the history of sermons. I wonder if you noticed that as I read through this passage, how God-centered it is, how, how Paul really does seem to have a worldview that sees that from him and through him and to him are all things. He is a God-intoxicated man, and this sermon is just full of all that God did. Let me just sketch it briefly so that you can see this. Verse 17, the God of, I should, I should, I should quiet down. Michelle's telling me you should just quiet down a little bit, Lair. Sometimes, that's not bad. I don't know why you're nodding at me. She's not the only one. Gotta chill, gotta, gotta relax. Can't share the whole message at the same volume level. Okay, resetting. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Look at verse 17. The God of this people chose our fathers. Who did that? God did it. God chose their fathers, and made the people great. Who made the people great? God made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. They went down to Egypt. They were 70 people. They multiplied and multiplied so that in the time of Pharaoh, they were 2 million people. Who did that? God did it. The God of this people chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he, that is God, he led them out. That's what the plagues, that's what the parting of the sea were about. It was God who was lifting up his holy, strong arm, delivering the people. And for about 18, verse 18, for about 40 years, he, God, he put up with them. He endured them in the wilderness as they wandered, as they rebelled, as they murmured and complained. He put up with them. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, who did that? God did it. Joshua and his army may have wielded some swords, but it was God who had destroyed these nations. And after that, he, God, gave them their land as an inheritance. And, and then Paul just adds, all this took about 450 years. Which, and I, this is not the most practical sermon I've ever preached. I mean, I think it is practical to just be reminded that God is faithful. But here's your practical word. 450 years. Sometimes we're called to wait patiently for the fulfillment of God's words to us. Persevere and be patient, dear brothers and sisters, those of you who are waiting. 
He gave them the land as an inheritance. He gave them after that, God, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Verse 21, they asked for a king and God did it. God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he, God, had removed him, he, God, raised up David to be their king. And he, God, testified about that man saying, I, God, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Now to this point in the sermon, I think that all the people gathered in that Jewish synagogue were nodding along. This was, this was a recounting of their history. Yes, that's good. Amen. And then Paul says something that might have been shocking to this Jewish congregation. Verse 23, of this man's offspring, David, of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior Jesus just as he promised. So God had promised that it would happen. God brought him. Then he goes into this little, I, I can, I've not been able to figure out why he spends the time there mentioning John's ministry the way he does. Uh, I couldn't read many, I didn't read many commentaries that talk much about it. It seems odd of all that he passes over that he would spend a sentence there uh, on John's ministry. But the point of John's ministry as he describes it is it's not about John. It's about Jesus. John's not even worthy to untie his sandals. Jesus is so important. So to us, verse 26, to us, Paul says, not just the Jews, but those God-fearers, those Gentile God-fearers fearers who were gathered in the synagogues, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. Who would have been the one who sent? To us has been sent the message. That would be God who sent the message. Verse 27, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. Do you remember how Peter put this back in chapter four? The Jews and the Gentiles and Pilate and Herod, they all conspired against the Lord to do whatever, this is a prayer, they're praying to God to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now Paul's basically saying the same thing. Why does he belabor that? They didn't understand the prophets. They didn't know what they were doing, but in their ignorance, they were actually fulfilling what God had said was going to happen. Verse 28, though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, all that was written of him, written by who? Written by the prophets who were inspired and directed by God. When they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God. Verse 30, but God. Those wonderful words, right? When things are looking dark, when things are, are looking bleak, when things are looking just like a colossal mess, but God raised him from the dead. God did that. God raised him. And for many days, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Do you see what a God-centered sermon this is? This is greatly encouraging to the people of God. Paul's message in Antioch heralds the wonderful truth that there is a great and a glorious God who rules and reigns over history. Know this great God. 
think about this great God. Worship this great God. Believe that this great God is really working in history. He is the main worker in history. He is the explanation of, he is the meaning of everything. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. As we just sang, as thou hast been, thou forever will be. What we learn in this sermon is that no power of hell, no scheme of man, no rage of the nations, no folly and rebellion even of God's own people can thwart God from accomplishing his sovereign purposes and fulfilling all of his promises. God is faithful. In Jesus, God has fulfilled all his promises to the people of Israel. And that encouragement centers on Jesus. And that's good for us to be reminded of. When Paul is asked on the spot to give a word of encouragement, he just talks about Jesus. And that makes sense because Jesus is very encouraging. There's a whole lot of encouragement in Jesus. And if we are feeling discouraged, even Essie is clapping about the, the encouragement that there is in Jesus. Praise God, little sister. There's a whole lot of encouragement in Jesus. And so in our weariness, beloved, in our discouragement, let us be a people that we would have words of encouragement for each other. Words of encouragement that center on Jesus. And not just Jesus springing up out of nowhere, but Jesus as the, as the fulfillment, as the climax of a centuries-long scavenger hunt is the, the image that I had in my mind. Some of you, you know, the holidays are coming. Kids, I don't know if, you're, if your parents do this. We never do this. I know this is a big thing in your house. Uh, that the, pre- the Christmas presents are scattered and there's a scavenger hunt along the way for the one big treasure of a present. Maybe that's not exactly how it was. Okay, Jeff's scoffing. There's a word about scoffing here in this passage, but it's not, it doesn't apply to you. Um, <laughs> kids, if you, have a, if you think about Christmas and you've got this one great treasure of a present, but then your parents set up little gifts and little clues along the way to lead you to that great treasure, that's the way Jesus came on the scene. There were lots of promises. There were lots of little clues throughout the whole history of God's dealings with his people that he was going to send them salvation in Jesus. So that when he came, it wasn't a big surprise, but it was the fulfillment of a long hunt and clues that were given for who would this rescuer be. All the way, I mean, Paul starts with the beginning of the people of Israel, but even before the beginning of the people of Israel with the patriarchs, when sin came into the world, God said to the serpent, there's gonna be an offspring who comes from the woman and you're gonna bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. I mean, that's when sin happens. Sin happens, God makes a promise. And he really had that promise planned even before sin came into the world because Paul speaks of grace given to the people of God in Christ Jesus even before the ages began. But right from the very beginning, there's this little clue. There's gonna be an offspring of the woman. He's going to crush the serpent. God had promised through the patriarchs. We read this uh, last Sunday in our service that through the offspring that would be given to Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And it was this little clue. At the end of the book of Genesis, God promised that the scepter would not depart from Judah. 
and that one from the tribe of Judah to one from the tribe of Judah would be the obedience of the peoples. A little clue. And when, when God's people were in bondage in Israel, he rescued them from the judgment that would be sent because he told them to slaughter an, in, a, a, an innocent lamb. A spotless lamb was to be slaughtered. And the blood from that lamb would be put on the doorposts of the Jewish people so that when the angel of the Lord came to bring judgment, the angel would see the blood of the lamb and would pass over the people of Israel. Little clue that God was going to send a perfect perfectly pure, spotless lamb of God to bear the sins of the world. God promised to David, and, and Paul makes much of this in this sermon, God promised David that one of his offspring would sit on his throne and his throne would be established forever. And God, through the prophet Isaiah, crystallized those promises by telling the people that this son would be called Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God and Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace and of the increase of his government and of peace, there would be no end. And God promised through the prophet Micah that this one who would come would be born in the city of Bethlehem. And God promised through Isaiah that this one who was coming would rescue his people by making in his own body an atonement for their sins by taking their sins upon himself. He was pierced. This is what Isaiah would write and see hundreds of years before Jesus would arrive. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This one who was promised would die for the sins of God's people, but God also promised that this promised one would rise from the dead. And that's the good news that Paul was heralding in this synagogue in Antioch. We bring you the good news. Not just you Jews, but remember, there were Gentile God-fearers in that synagogue too. We bring all of you this good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. In raising Jesus, God declared for the whole world to see that the Lord Jesus was in fact the Son of God, the offspring of David, and the fulfillment of all of God's promises. That's, those are the allusions there in verses uh, 33 and following, those references in the Old Testament from Psalm 2 and from Isaiah 55 and from Psalm 16 is to show that when God raised up Jesus, he had always been the son of God in eternity past. He was always one with the Father, always existing in eternal deity, but when he came as the Messiah, as the son of David, as he gave his life, as he was raised triumphant from the grave to take his place at the Father's right hand, now as the serpent crusher, now as the sin destroyer, now as that lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, now as the death defeater and the covenant fulfiller, God was declaring, this is my son, this is the Messiah, 
Messiah. This is the Savior. This is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He did that. He promised that. He declared that through the resurrection of Jesus. And even now, the resurrected Christ reigns over all the world. He is even now putting all his enemies under his feet. That reign is invisible now. Right? It, you look at the world around us. You turn on the news. You look at your own life. Maybe it doesn't seem like Jesus is reigning over everything. He is reigning now, but the day is coming when he will break forth with visible glory and he will establish his kingdom triumphantly on earth. And the meek, both among the Jews and the Gentiles, the meek will inherit the earth. A lot of conflict in the Middle East over this little strip of land. Jesus made a promise to his people, his people, both Jew and Gentile, all those gathered to him in faith that they would inherit the whole world. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And when the suffering just feels like it's too much to bear, we look to the risen Jesus and we see Jesus passing through suffering and being exalted in glory and we know that's our destiny as those relying upon and looking to Jesus. In a world full of bad news, beloved, we have great reason to be encouraged because Christ is risen. Okay. We're getting ready for Christmas but it's never a bad time to say, Christ is risen. No, come on, that is pretty weak. That was pretty pitiful. Maybe you didn't understand what I was doing. But let's go. Christ is risen. That's a, that's a little better. <laughs> This is good news. This good news that Christ is risen is meant to be like, you know, in a, in a, in a I mean, I don't really watch boxing too much anymore, but you know, when a boxer gets knocked out, sometimes they give him these, these smelling salts to wake him up. And the resurrection of Jesus is like smelling salts in a world that is constantly knocking us down to the, 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 this announcement that Jesus is alive is what wakes us up that because of Christ, no matter how much this world might knock us down, the best is yet to come. We're going to have hard times, beloved, because Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if it's only in this life that we have hoped in Christ, we're of all people most to be pitied. So it's gonna be hard. If we only have this world and this life to evaluate things by, it's going to look like we are hoping in Jesus and we are the most pitiable people in the world. But in fact, Paul would say, Christ is risen from the dead. Beloved, do not forget that Christ is risen. And all of this begs the question though, have you hoped in Jesus? Have you put your hope in Jesus? That is the response that Paul seeks to his great announcement about the fulfillment of God's promises in Jesus. I said that we can summarize this sermon. I don't mean this sermon I'm preaching, but hopefully actually both. The sermon that Paul preached in Antioch by saying, in Jesus, God has fulfilled all his promises to the people of Israel. Don't miss out on such a great salvation. Look again at verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, through Jesus, through the risen Christ, this man, 
Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. This, this final warning there in verses 40 and 41 is a reference to the prophet Habakkuk, specifically Habakkuk 1.5 which originally had warned the people of Israel of King Nebuchadnezzar's rise to power and the threat of an invasion from Babylon if the nation failed to repent. And here, the warning to these people gathered, both Jew and Gentile gathered in that synagogue in Antioch, was that God would once again bring judgment upon the people if they failed to accept the mercy and forgiveness that was now being offered to them in Jesus. If they would reject the promised savior who had come and died and risen, if they rejected him, they too would be rejected and would experience his judgment. But God's word of promise stands today just as it did for those Jews and Gentile God-fearers gathered in that synagogue in Antioch. Through this man, Jesus, through his innocent life, through his perfectly obedient, sinless life, through his willing sacrifice on the cross, standing in the place for guilty sinners, through his victorious triumph over the grave to demonstrate that he had paid the wages for our sin in full, through this man, forgiveness and freedom can be had. That's the salvation that Jesus came to bring. We were told back in verse 26 that there was good news of salvation that had come to the people. In verse 23, we were told that Jesus, God promised Jesus the Savior and brought him. This is what Jesus is a Savior from, from the penalty and the enslaving power of sin. When God sent Jesus, the people were looking for a political Savior. Jesus was not a political Savior. That's not what he came for. He was not a circumstantial savior, rescuing them from every bit of difficulty and trouble that they had. He was not a dispenser of purpose. He was not a filler of the God-shaped hole that is in the human heart. He didn't come to heal the sense of low self-esteem and low self-worth that we have. He came to see that sins would be forgiven because sins are our biggest problem. You're looking at me a little bit confused, so let me clarify. There is healing that can be found in Jesus. There is hope, there is comfort, there is purpose that can be found in Jesus, but you could share the good news about Jesus with somebody else and they could say, well, I have peace through somebody else. I have peace through Muhammad or I have peace through my political involvement or my good works. People could have peace or purpose or feel healing for a whole lot of reasons, but they cannot escape the judgment of God without Jesus. Sin is our biggest problem. Human beings, because of sin, we are dead to sin, we are slaves, we are lost, we are blind, we are guilty, and we need redemption. And what Paul says here is that the law cannot fix that. 
Human works, human activity, human doing cannot do that, but Jesus can do it, and Jesus did do it. Believe upon him. And so if you are here this morning and you have not believed upon Jesus, if you think you're good, you're okay, you're right with God because you just are a good person, God's word to you today is turn away from your self-worship. Turn away from your self-rule and your self-love and turn to Jesus. You might not feel that you need to be afraid of the judgment of God. That might not feel like a pressing problem in your life. But you know, I, I always think about this, how on the morning of September 11th, 2001, if you had showed up at the World Trade Center at 8.15 in the morning and said, get as far away from this building as you can possibly get away from it, there would have been a lot of people saying, I don't feel any need to get away from the World Trade Center. I get here every day. This is where I work. Just because you do not feel a need to be rescued from the coming of judgment of God, that doesn't mean that it is real. The judgment of God is real. God made us, he owns us, we are accountable to him and while he is patient and he has brought you here to hear this good news of salvation, be assured that God will come again and he will bring judgment upon those who scoff at his salvation. But he's brought you here today that you might hear the word of salvation, that you might turn away from all those things that cannot really free you and that you would find freedom and forgiveness in Jesus. Faith in Jesus and faith alone sets people free from the penalty and the rule of all those things from which it was impossible to find release by the law of Moses. I love the way John Newton puts this in his great hymn. It's one of our favorites. Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. He has brought us near to God. Praise God for such a great salvation in Jesus. In Jesus, God has fulfilled all his promises to the people of Israel. Don't miss out on such a great salvation. Very briefly, two quick takeaways for us. First, brothers and sisters, Continue in the grace of God. Continue in the grace of God. You see, at the end of this passage that I read, when Paul gets done, it says they begged. I love that. They begged to hear these things again the next Sabbath. And then when many followed Paul and Barnabas, they urged whether these were inquirers at this point. Maybe they had been converted that day, listening to Paul preach this message. But what they told them to do was continue in the grace of God. Continue in the grace of God. What a sweet reminder that is, that we never move on from the good news of God's gracious salvation. In our songs that we sing, in the prayers that we pray, in this very practice of every week having someone stand up here and confessing our sins and then being reminded of God's pardon and his love and grace in Christ. In our sermons, we want to declare again and again and again the good news of God's grace to you in Jesus. Paul never forgot that message. He never got over the grace of God in his own life and he never wearied of telling the, the converts that he made and the churches that he established to continue in the grace of God. 
young people, maybe you have studied this, or you have studied it, maybe you remember these words that Paul said to the church in Colossae, in Colossians 2, 6 and 7, he said, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. What do we do? How do we walk the Christian life? How do we live the Christian life? How do we make progress in godliness? The same way we received him in the beginning. We receive Jesus. We trust Jesus. We worship Jesus. We adore Jesus. We marvel at the grace that has come to us in Jesus. That is how we go about living our Christian lives. Continue in the grace of God. Secondly, you know what? I put a bunch of these back here. I should say something about it. If you want another, even more practical step, continue in the grace of God. Here's this little booklet. I've mentioned it to you before. This is a wonderful little primer. That's actually what it's called, a gospel primer. It's a wonderful little primer on the good news of grace and salvation in Jesus and how practical this is, how relevant this is for every single Christian. There's a bunch of them at the welcome desk. Take one this week. And if you, either by yourselves or with your family, read it through every day this week. It would take you five minutes to read this little booklet and it is a good way to encourage you to continue in the grace of God. I need to finish but very briefly a second point. Consider first one is continue. I got this alliterated for you. He's, he's passed. You're not even listening anymore are you? But continue and consider. Consider whether God wants you to be a missionary or at least consider how God wants to use you to further his work of spreading the good news of this grace to those who have little or no access to it. Remember that this good news about this faithful God who had fulfilled all of his promises to Israel in Jesus was being heralded by a missionary. A man who had traveled close to 500 miles from Jerusalem to Antioch and Pisidia to tell these Jews and these God-fearers that even though there was no salvation and no hope in the law of Moses, God had sent salvation in the person of Jesus. Was this the first time in this, in this uh, synagogue in Antioch, was this the first time in this city that the name of Jesus had ever been uttered? I don't know that for a fact, but the way that they responded, begging to be told more of this, inclines me to think this was the very first time that the name of Jesus had ever been declared in Antioch. And so consider, beloved, whether God wants you to be the herald of his gracious salvation to a group of people that have never heard that good news. And if not for you yourself to go, how might you be faithful to send? I've heard it said over the, the missionary work of the church, right, that we have three options, right? We, we, we can go, we can send, or we can disobey. How are you helping with the work of seeing groups of people like this one in Antioch come to hear the good news of salvation in Jesus when they don't have access to it? How are you working in that way? There are many people in this church I wanted to say this last week, we were a little late, I'm a little late now, but I'm saying it. There are many in this church who have labored for a long time in various ways to that end. So we prayed for Dan and Tracy who are thinking in their 50s about how to just reorient their whole lives for the sake of people in India having more access to the gospel. Praise God that there's people that are thinking about that. 
there, there's people like Amanda Booty who spent years, almost two decades of your life, or was it two decades of your life, amongst the people in Bosnia so that they would be able to hear this good news of salvation. We've got people like Stephen Pat Mosley who labored for decades in Portugal. We've got people like Lane and Lisa. I'm, I, won't, I don't know if they're, they're not even in that place in Central Asia anymore, but laboring for a couple decades amongst people in Central Asia. We've got faithful senders like these two sitting right here, Dick and Joan Widener, who know what it's like to, to take their children to the airport, to take one to China, to take one to India, not just for them to go for a week or two, but to go for years, not knowing when they might see them next. We've got, we've got the Bachmans here. We've got the Holmeses here. We've got Chuck Jackson, Bob Miles going to Nepal on, on vacation time that they have. There's a lot in this little church. There's a lot of ways that the grace of God is active among us, stirring people up. They would love to talk with you. They would love to help you take steps about how you can be faithful to go or faithful to send. Let us consider, beloved. Let us continue in the grace of God. Let us not put our hope in our evangelism or our missions or our praying and our study of the Bible. Let us hope in Jesus. Let us continue in the grace of God. But it is such a wonderful word of encouragement. Don't our hearts long for more people to come to know it? So let us consider how we might be used to spread this wonderful word of encouragement to the ends of the earth. Love you, brothers and sisters. Father, thank you for this word of encouragement. We pray that you would encourage our souls freshly today in the good news that what you promised to your people Israel, you have fulfilled in Jesus we look at what is happening in the Middle East. I know many of our hearts are heavy. We are grieved. We are troubled. It is, it is troubling. It is grievous. It is heartbreaking. Help us to remember that what is most needed in the Middle East, while there's good reason for humanitarian aid and for trying to keep innocent people safe, what the people of Hamas need and what the people of Israel need is redemption through Jesus. And both of these nations basically are rebelling against you in their rejection of the Messiah. Help us as we watch the devastation, as we are troubled by it, help us to be longing for their salvation and their repentance from their sin and their finding refuge in Jesus who welcomes the Jewish sinners, who welcomes the Gentile sinners, who welcomes all sinners. May we rest in your grace, may we continue in your grace, and may you equip us with everything good that we might do your will, that you would work in us what's pleasing in your sight through Jesus, to whom be glory forever and ever, amen.